This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Child Abuse. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Corporal punishment, often called physical punishment, has been in common use since ancient times. Until recent past, domestic corporal punishment, such as spanking, was seen as a parent's right, if not their duty, to discipline a child. More recent research has turned that on its head and proven that corporal punishment, while effective in the short term, actually results in increased disobedience and aggressive behavior in the long term, along with a slew of other adverse mood and behavior outcomes. Additionally, it is often a very fine line between corporal punishment and physical abuse. In the United States, two-thirds of cases of physical abuse started as corporal punishment. Elizabeth Gershoff, a professor of human development and family sciences at the University of Texas at Austin and prominent researcher of corporal punishment, stated that both corporal punishment and child abuse involve hitting and purposefully hurting children. The difference between the two is often degree rather than intent. In 1979, Sweden became the first country to legally prohibit corporal punishment of children. As of 2023, 71 additional countries around the world have followed suit and have completely banned corporal punishment of children. However, in the United States, corporal punishment in the form of spanking remains legal in all 50 states. Corporal punishment in schools is still legal in most southern states. The American Academy of Pediatrics cautions that parents who spank their children are more likely to use other unacceptable forms of corporal punishment, which can quickly escalate into abuse. Abuse significantly impacts the lives of children, and as mandated reporters, we as clinicians need to recognize the signs of child abuse and know how to address them. 
To discuss this topic today, I have invited a child abuse expert. Dr. Kristen Crichton is a child abuse pediatrician at Nationwide Children's Hospital. She is also an expert educator training the next generation of physicians as an associate program director of the Pediatric Residency Program and Child Abuse Fellowship. Kristen, welcome to MedNet. Hi, so good to be here. Well, Kristen, aside from medical professionals, who are the other mandated reporters of child abuse? Mandated reporters vary by state, um, but in general, it really includes any um, profession that is typically working with children. So um, teachers, counselors, daycare providers, social workers um, are all mandated reporters. There are actually several states where every citizen is a mandated reporter. Hmm. Um, and in, in all states, I would say we can all report. Mm -hmm. Just because we aren't mandated doesn't mean we cannot report to children's services. Perfect, thank you, Kristen. This is such an important topic. And in addition to this topic, you can find all of our other topics on our website at go.osu.edu slash mednet21. There we have 120 of webcasts along with their slides and instructions to receive CME credit and ABIM MOC points. You can also listen to our programs by podcast. We have recently switched to a new platform, so search for OSU MedNet21 on your podcast player. If you have any questions for any of our programs, please don't hesitate to ask by using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of your webcast player. Now let's get started. Kristen? Hello, thank you so much for having me once again. All right, so just to cover our objectives for today, um, we're gonna review the epidemiology of child maltreatment. I think one of the things um, whenever I talk about this is that many people kind of underestimate the prevalence of this, this problem. Um, then we're going to describe patterns of injury and clinical presentations associated with uh, child abuse and review the differential diagnosis and recommended assessment for different types of child abuse. So I think the first thing we need to do today is make sure we understand what we're talking about. So this definition from child abuse comes from the Federal Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, otherwise known as CAPTA, um, which all states follow. Um, and it states that any child abuse is any recent act or failure to act on the part of a parent or caretaker which results in death, serious physical or emotional harm, sexual abuse or exploitation, or an act or failure to act which presents an imminent risk of serious harm. So two things I would highlight from this definition is that child abuse can be an act of commission, so for example a, a parent hitting a child, or an act of omission, so a failure to protect a child in a, a harmful setting. Also, even if the act doesn't result in harm, um, if there is a risk of harm, that could qualify as child abuse. Most states recognize four major types of maltreatment, neglect, sexual abuse, physical abuse, and emotional abuse. Within neglect, there are many types of neglect. There's supervisory neglect, so um, kids kind of falling out of a second story window um, or uh, um, educational neglect, so if children aren't going to school appropriately, um, medical neglect, if children aren't getting the medical care that they need, um, so again, many types of neglect, sexual abuse, um, which is its own topic, um, emotional abuse, and then physical abuse, which is what we're going to be talking about primarily today. So again, like I said, I think the important thing to know is the epidemiology. I think really abuse is much more common um, than, than people realize. The most recent data we have are from 2021, and this, these data are from reports made to Child Protective Sur 
services agencies across the country. So each state um, reports their data uh, to this, this central administration. Um, and in 2021, there were 4 million referrals of child abuse and neglect involving 7 million children. It's actually slightly down from the typical annual numbers from before COVID, um, but it's, it's pretty, pretty close. Um, of those, about 3 million children received investigative responses. So that means they were screened in um, by the Child Protective, Sur Protective Services Agency for investigation. And then from there, about 600,000 victims were substantiated um, victims of child maltreatment. So what I would like to highlight is that I think as medical providers, we can all imagine that not all abuse gets reported. And then despite their best efforts, not all of the screening in, screening out process is perfect. And then within the substantiation process, again, it's likely imperfect. So 600,000 is likely a, a underestimate of um, the actual numbers of children who are experiencing um, some form of child maltreatment annually. The rate of victimization nationally is about eight per thousand children. In Ohio, um, where I practice, our rate is 9.3 per thousand children. I like to think it's because we're better at detecting it and not that we have more abuse here, but I, I don't know. Um, but annually in the state of Ohio, that means there's over 24,000 child victims of child maltreatment, which is a lot of children in one state. When we look by type, um, so the pie chart here is, is national um, rates of child maltreatment by type. Neglect is the biggest chunk of pie. Um, it's about two thirds. Physical abuse is about 20%. Um, and then sexual abuse is around 15. And then psychological is the least frequently reported. Within Ohio, 40% um, of the abuse reported here is neglect, 39% is physical abuse, and 15% is sexual abuse. And multiple, one report can contain multiple types of child maltreatment. So the, these do not add up to 100%. One of the things that I think is also striking is the number of children that actually die as a result of child maltreatment. Five children per day die in our country as a result of child abuse and neglect. That's a similar rate to pediatric cancer, and it's actually fewer, or sorry, more children that die as a result of motor vehicle accidents in our country. So this is really a prevalent and deadly problem um, that, we, that we have um, our children experiencing across the country. In terms of, um, data regarding these, these deaths. Child abuse is a leading cause of head injury in children less than one year old, and homicide is the leading cause of injury-related deaths in children less than four years old. Um, so these, again, can be really significant, um, have really significant morbidity mortality with child maltreatment. I think what's important to remember for those of us that work with children is that serious traumatic injuries in children, particularly fatal cases, are rarely accidental unless there's a clear explanation for an event. So a, a fall from multiple stories or a, a significant motor vehicle collision without a, a very obvious um, etiology of injury, we need to be worried about child maltreatment and we need to keep it on our differential. I would be a really bad child abuse pediatrician if I didn't talk about risk factors, but then I'm gonna, so I will, but then I'm gonna tell you to not think very hard about this. 
Um, so risk factors for child abuse at the individual level include a child's disability. So we know that children that require more care are more at risk of child maltreatment because caregivers can get overburdened and frustrated. Um, parental depression and substance use disorder also um, both contribute to, to abuse. Again, if parents are stressed and they just don't have enough resources to care for a child, it can lead to, to risk of maltreatment. At the family level, domestic violence um, between caregivers in a home is a key risk factor for child maltreatment. We know that whenever there's any type of family violence in a home, children are at risk um, for experiencing maltreatment. Single parent homes, again, it's, it's hard. Parenting is hard um, and doing it alone without significant um, resources available um, can, can certainly stress, stress a single parent. Community and society um, risk factors include dangerous neighborhoods with a lack of recreational facilities um, or poverty. Protective risk factors, nurturing and attachment between a child and their caregiver. When the caregiver has good knowledge of parenting and child and youth development. So um, one of the things I ask parents when I meet with them is to tell me about their child. And if a, a parent of a four month old says, you know, my baby's really needy that tells me that they probably don't understand um, infant development very well and that they're not good, they don't at this point have reasonable expectations for what their child should be able to do and not do. And this gives us an opportunity um, as caregivers, to medical providers to children to educate families on what to expect um, and how to help them cope with, with these infants who do need a lot of care. Parental resilience um, can be protective if, if parents kind of have good coping strategies, good social connections, good concrete support. And then as children get older and have more social and emotional competence, um, that is also protective for them. Now, like I said, I, we've gone through all the risk factors. I'm gonna tell you that these are great at the population level to remember and to think of when we're talking about populations. But when you're in a room with a family, that's not a population, that's one parent. And they could have all of these risk factors and the child in front of you could have an injury that is a plausible accident. Or they could have none of these risk factors and they could have an injury for which there is no plausible explanation. And we still have to be concerned about abuse. So when you're looking at a patient, think about the patient and the injury that we're seeing and we want to stay as objective as possible and not think about, well, this family's really nice, or they're really good, or they live in my neighborhood, because it just doesn't matter. Abuse can happen in any setting with any child from any neighborhood, and we have to remain as objective as we can regarding the history that's provided uh, from the parent or caregiver regarding the injury that we see, and does it match the injury we see or not? And that's what we're gonna talk about more. So, um, like we heard about during the intro, corporal punishment is something that comes up a lot. So, what, where is that line between discipline and, um, and abuse? So, the U.S. law states that corporal punishment should be limited to buttocks and overclothing. Um, any injury beyond transient redness is considered abuse. I think if we asked every single person watching this right now um, what transient redness is, we probably have just as many um, answers because that's not very clear. Um, 
they also state that objects other than the hand have potential for serious harm. Uh, and acts of serious violence should be seen as abusive even if no injury ensues because there's significant risk of harm. So this law is not very specific or clear. Um, the way we interpret it and the way we kind of put this into play in, in our practice is that if there is bruising or welts left from um, an act of corporal punishment, we would report that to Children's Services as concerning for physical abuse. The Ohio law states that the major legal test is whether the parent's actions constituted proper and reasonable discipline. Again, I think that is not very specific or helpful. Um, so we fall on really, was there a, a bruise or welt or other mark left um, as a result of this act? When we look at child maltreatment victims by age, I think the most important thing to th think of is is this graph, which um, if you're listening, shows that the vast majority of child abuse occurs in children less than one year old. Um, so these are our youngest, most vulnerable victims. They cannot tell us what has happened because developmentally they're not talking. Um, they're the children that need the most care, that really rely on on intense um, care from their, from their caregivers to thrive. Um, babies need to be fed a lot. They need their diapers changed. Um, they they need to be supervised constantly, um, and that's challenging and hard. Um, so our, our youngest kids are the most at risk. The risk substantially declines for children once they turn one, and then it slowly tapers off as they get older, um, up through 17. And this graph is from the same report that I discussed um, at the beginning of the, the presentation. So I'm going to talk about a case example of a very young infant um, who, at two months of age, um, presented to a primary care uh, pediatrician for with bruising of his arms and legs and subconjunctival hemorrhage. Um, the the PCP was concerned and kind of talked to mom about maybe what had happened, what was going on, and. They thought, well, gosh, um, maybe he's being swaddled too hard. Um, the PCP sent off some, some screening labs to look for a bleeding disorder, CBC, coags. Uh, a week later, the child came back, and now there was bruising to the child's abdomen. Um, and so at this point, the first set of labs had come back as reassuring. Um, so the PCP referred to um, hematology for additional workup. Uh, a few weeks later, the child went to an urgent care appointment um, for assessment for an injury to the tip of his tongue. At this point, he's three months of age. He does not have any teeth. Um, so an injury to the tongue is, is concerning because this child can't really do anything to hurt his own tongue. Um, Tylenol was recommended and the um, baby went home. And then at encounter four, he came in with altered mental status and was found to have... Um, subdural hemorrhage and fracture to the distal tibia. So each of these encounters had been um, an opportunity to recognize that this child was experiencing injury beyond what developmentally he could cause accidentally. And there was really no other um, explanation provided for the bruising to his arms and legs, the subconjunctival hemorrhage, the bruising to his abdomen, or the injury to his tongue. And those are all called sentinel injuries. So these are visible or detectable minor injuries in pre-cruising infants um, that are poorly explained and therefore concerning for physical abuse. 
And while these injuries really don't require um, medical intervention, like a bruise is going to resolve on its own and an oral injury will heal uh, without intervention, they tip us off as medical providers that there is potentially something going on in this child's care environment that is causing harm. And without intervention, what the data show us is that there, there is the potential for escalating harm. And as we saw with this case, this child ended up with um, injuries concerning for abusive head trauma as well as fracture. Unfortunately, this case is not isolated. Um, Carol Jenny, um, who's one of the early um, researchers in, in physical abuse, reported in 1999 on 54 cases of abusive head injury that were missed upon the first presentation. Almost a third of those children went on to be re-injured after that misdiagnosis. 40% of them experienced complications related to that diagnosis, and at least four of them died what could have been preventable deaths. While these data are relatively old um, at this point, 24 years old, the study has actually been repeated um, more recently in 2016 by Dr. Megan Letson um, and colleagues. This is a multi-center study evaluating children with abusive head trauma with prior opportunities to detect the abuse. And again, the, the data were very similar. A quarter of them had an opportunity to identify abuse in a medical setting. And then 6% had an opportunity to identify abuse through children's services involvement. So there was already um, something happening that, that children's services was involved with. And when the researchers looked at what symptoms um, were present, vomiting and bruising were the most common symptoms. Vomiting in these young infants is obviously, babies vomit, babies spit up. Um, so that's, we, we just, shows us that we need to have on our differential non-accidental trauma when we're evaluating even very common symptoms in children. Um, and bruising, while common um, in older kids, is less common in, in these young children. We're gonna talk more about that. Uh, and then in a final study I'm gonna talk about, um, this is from Dr. Lynn Sheets uh, from about 10 years ago. It's a retrospective case control study of about 400 babies. She compared sentinel injuries in children with definite abuse versus those with intermediate concerns versus non-injured controls. Again, defining a sentinel injury as an injury suspicious for abuse visible to at least one parent before the events leading to the current admission. Of the 200 infants that were definitely abused, about 28% um, had a sentinel injury or injuries. The vast majority, 80% were bruises, 11% intraoral injuries, 7% fractures. And that's compared to the non-abused infants where none of them had had a prior sentinel injury. Sentinel injuries occurred early in infancy, two-thirds in children less than three months old, so very young infants, and 95% at or before the age of seven months. Medical providers were reportedly aware of the sentinel injury in nearly half of these cases. So. While I, I think we previously thought of child abuse as kind of being the result of an otherwise emotionally healthy caregiver momentarily losing control, the data really tell us a different picture. And the reality is that many children are raised in environments where they're repeatedly exposed to potential harm. So we need to make sure we're picking up on these, these subtle injuries and intervening. So again, bruising is one of um, the the common tip-offs um, that, that may be something going on in children. Bruising is the most common type of injury in abused children. It's also, of course, the most common type of injury in non-abused children. I have a five-year-old. I don't think she's been without a bruise somewhere on her body since she started crawling, playing, running, 
jumping off of things. So we have to figure out how do we sort out the bruises that we're worried about versus the bruises that we're not worried about. The first thing to do is to think about their development. So what can this child do? Um, and again, these are both kind of seminal studies from about 25 years ago um, from doctors Naomi Sugar and Dr. Carpenter looking at the prevalence of bruises in children broken down by their developmental stage. So in pre-cruisers or kids who are sitting, um, it's less than 4%. So very few bruises in these children that are not moving themselves yet. Cruisers, about 20%. So those kids are pulling to stand, scooting around the coffee table, can fall, bump a knee, bump a head. Um, and then once children are walking, as high as 50%, even higher as kids get older because now they're maniacs and they're running around and having accidental injury. So it's really important to understand when we see young children, where are they developmentally? And we need to understand if there is a developmental delay, if there, you have a nine month old who isn't sitting yet, that's important to know because a nine month old could be walking or they could be um, you know, not, not moving um, themselves. And so understanding are they typically developing or is there some kind of delay is really key in sorting out this, these bruises. Um, in, a, in another study that I, I cite frequently, um, from Dr. Harper and colleagues, data from 146 children less than six months with apparently isolated bruising were collected. So these are babies that on exam, the only thing that was concerning was one bruise. Skeletal surveys, neuroimaging, and screening labs for abdominal trauma um, were completed, and then there's an estimate of likelihood of abuse. Amongst this population of infants with one bruise on exam, no other symptoms, 23% had injuries identified on their, their skeletal survey, so some kind of bony injury. 27% had injury identified on their neuroimaging, either a head CT or MRI. And then a little bit less than 3% had abdominal injury. Altogether, 50% of these children had at least one additional serious injury identified by diagnostic testing. 50% had a perceived likely, high perceived likelihood of abuse and no bleeding disorders were identified. So what this tells us is that bruising in young infants should prompt concerns for physical abuse. We cannot tell by a musculoskeletal exam on an infant if they have an occult fracture. They, we just are too limited in what we can, we can do um, on these young infants that are not weight bearing um, to understand whether they have a bony injury without getting the, those x-rays. Similarly, a neurologic exam on a less than six month old is just too limited um, to be able to do um, thoroughly and we need to get neuroimaging those children. So a routine approach to evaluation of infants with concerns for physical abuse includes a thorough physical examination. At our hospital, we call it one and down in a gown. We wanna get these babies undressed, make sure we're looking at all of their skin, get that skeletal survey, which we'll talk a little bit more about, neuroimaging, and then screening labs for abdominal injury. Some red flag histories for infants with bruising. Um, the baby must have laid on something. Um, laying on, a, on an object should not cause bruising. We would not expect that. They must have fallen against the side of the crib. Um, cribs are safe. We recommend them for a reason. Um, and we do not expect um, injuries to result um, as visible injuries to result as um, a fall in a crib. His brother probably did it. While it's not impossible, then an older sibling could certainly um, 
uh, cause some pain to a younger sibling. We, again, wouldn't expect a significant bruise as a result. She hits herself in the face. Um, kids really aren't going to hit themselves. They can't generate the force uh, necessary to cause bruising to themselves or a toy fell on them. The other thing we want to think about as children get older and they do start to have more accidental injuries is where these injuries are. We expect accidental injuries to be over bony prominences. So forehead, chin, elbows, knees, shins, all normal places to see accidental bruises. That's where my daughter has them all the time. Where we don't expect to see them are soft tissue areas. So the cheeks, um, especially under the mandible, kind of um, under that chin. The neck is a protected area. You just don't fall on your neck. Um, the abdomen is soft. There are not bony prominences there. Uh, and then kind of backs of arms and backs of legs is less common um, in terms of accidental injury. Also ears. It's very unusual for a child to fall on their ear. So here's the same information in verbal form. So accidental injuries, forehead, chin, elbows, knees, shins. I think it has a little bit of a rhyme to help you remember. Um, Non-accidental, again, ears, neck, abdominal wall. Buttocks, anus, and genitalia are protected areas. And if we see bruising in any of these areas, we absolutely need to be asking questions. Let's talk a little bit more about ear bruising. Um, so again, bruising of the pinna is rarely the result of accidental injury. Um, unless you have a history of a child, for example, on a push toy that falls and strikes their head against another object, for example, uh, the tire of a car that's in the garage where they're pushing their toy by. This happened in one of my friend's home, so this is an actual accidental injury, or a child rolling out of bed and hitting their ear on the bedside table. These are going to happen in ambulatory children that are moving, and you're going to have a clear history of what has happened. In younger children or when there is no history, and it's just kind of a presumed fall, that's concerning and should prompt evaluation, especially in young infants, for intracranial injury because, of course, the ear is on the side of your head. Um, these injuries can be the result of a blow to the side of the head or pinching and pulling um, to the top of the ear. It's also important when we do ear exams, you know, a lot of times we grab the otoscope, we're looking inside the ear, we're not, you know, moving the ear around, but sometimes we can have bruising to the back of the ear that we wouldn't see without reflecting that ear back. So when we're looking at ears and doing a thorough exam, we want to make sure we're looking at the back of the ear as well. Patterned bruising to the buttocks, um, because of the convexity of the surface of the buttocks, there's a site of shear injury between impacted and non-impacted tissue. So you can get these vertical lines of bruising kind of down the gluteal cleft scene. Um, as it heals, it can become um, more diffuse. But when we see this, is this from spanking? Yes, it, it likely is. Um, and is spanking part of physical discipline? Yes. However, this is leaving a lasting mark. This is a bruise. We would report this for physical abuse. This is beyond what we would be considered reasonable corporal punishment. Injury inflicted by a hand. Um, when a hand comes in contact with skin, the blood in nearby capillaries ruptures, so you get an outline of the finger or hand. Um, and that is certainly, again, could be the result of, of an attempt at corporal punishment, but this is a lasting injury and we would be concerned about this and report this. Inflexible objects um, can leave short linear bruising. Um, this could happen from a club, stick, or pipe. We, it would be on one plane uh, of the child's body and would not follow the curvature of the affected region. A again, as it heals, it can um, kind of 
resolve into no definable pattern with um, as the ecchymosis um, heals. So it may not stay <laughs> looking like a short linear bruise, but that's what we would expect from um, being hit with, with something not flexible. And that's in contrast to a flexible object. So here in this picture, we see loop marks um, that are wrapping around this child's anterior abdominal wall caused by a flexible object um, following the curvature of, of the body as it's impacting the body. So we would see this with extension cords, belts, ropes. Um, and this is something we see frequently on older children um, and, and asking them about it and understanding what has happened um, to cause this is important. And again, if they say, I got in trouble and my parent whooped me with a belt, if it's leaving a mark like this, that is beyond typical corporal punishment and would be, we would recommend reporting to children's services. There is a clinical decision rule that was developed by um, one of my colleagues, Mary Clyde Pierce. She's a um, pediatric emergency medicine doc at Lurie Children's in Chicago, and she has great data to support um, this clinical decision rule, which she's made into a mnemonic, 10-4 faces P. Um, the 10, the T-E-N, stands for torso, ears, and neck. Uh, faces is frenulum, angle of the jaw, cheeks, the, the soft part, um, eyelids, and subconjunctiva. So those are the regions of the body where if we see bruises in any of those areas, we're concerned. The four reminds us that children four months and younger really shouldn't have bruises anywhere because they're not ambulatory or not even rolling typically um, and should prompt concern for abuse. And then the P is patterned bruising. So bruises in specific patterns like a slap, grab, or loop mark um, would all be concerning. And so these are when we want to make sure we're thinking about physical abuse in these kids. Something that comes up a lot for us when we talk to our children's services and law enforcement colleagues is, well, how, how often is this child being abused? I, I feel like I see bruises that are older and newer so we can say that there's um, multiple episodes of physical abuse. And while I wish I could say um, exactly how old a bruise is, the time it takes for a bruise to appear and resolve depends on many things. The attachment of the tissue injured, the thickness of that tissue, the type and depth of the injuring force, the vascularity um, of the, the injured and surrounding tissues, the underlying color of the patient's skin, the age of the patient, and any underlying conditions that they may have that may contribute to how quickly they heal. And in a meta-analysis, looking at this, assessment of the age of a bruise in children is inaccurate and has no scientific basis. So at this point, there is no way to look at bruises even on the same child and date them and say that they came from different episodes, unfortunately. So um, when we see documentation that says a child has old and new bruising, it, I get a little cringy because we really can't say that. There are several mimics of abuse that are, are quite common. Um, congenital dermal melanocytosis, um, also known as Mongolian spots, are very common in um, mixed-race babies, especially anyone with darker skin, um, but really can be seen in, in any child. They're typically on the lower back and buttocks. That's kind of what we learn in medical school, but we can see them anywhere. In the picture here, they're spreading up the midline of the back and even to the top of the back. See them on shoulders. I've seen them on wrists. I've seen them on ankles. The way to distinguish these from bruises is that they usually have more of a homogenous um, color, and they're that slate gray macule with a fine... Um, edge 
and they won't resolve over time. So of course, if we're concerned it's a bruise, we don't want to wait and see if the bruise goes away before we do something inter intervene to protect the child. But uh, a CDM will not change um, over, over the short period of time. The differential diagnosis for bruises is large. The first thing that we want to think about is trauma, accidental versus non-accidental. Uh, we also always think about bleeding disorders. Um, we do have a recommended workup that is on this slide on the right. So CBC, we get recommended COAG panel, factors eight and nine. Um, in cases of extensive bruising, we want to think about getting a von Willebrand panel with platelet function analysis um, to, to thoroughly evaluate for any underlying bleeding disorders. Um, connective tissue disorders can contribute to easy bleeding or easy bruising, malignancies, vitamin K deficiency in young infants. We want to make sure we're asking if they were born in a hospital and if they did get vitamin K because we are seeing an increase in um, family members declining that therapy. Um, if they're on any medications that may cause easy bleeding or easy bruising and then um, mimics of bruising like we just talked about with CDM. Now, the most important thing to remember is that the presence of a medical disorder does not preclude abuse. So I have seen children that have chronic ITP, for example, and are also abused. Um, so it's, it's important to think that these things can coexist. And when we're doing this workup, we want to do the, we don't want to wait for all of these labs to come back because certainly the factor labs can take a few days to protect the child. If we're worried about a child, we need to make sure we're keeping them safe while we're, we're waiting for this workup to come back. Um, and at the same time, in young infants, we would wanna make sure we are screening for those occult injuries. So like I said, our neuro exam is such that we really need to be getting neuroimaging, either a head CT or MRI of the brain in children six months and younger. We need to get the skeletal survey, those um, x-rays to look for bony injury in kids two years and younger, and then screening labs for abdominal trauma, which we'll talk about in kids less than five. So the skeletal survey is the primary imaging study for suspected child abuse in children less than two. Um, it needs to comply with the standards set forth by the American College of Radiology, and it's really about 24 separate radiographic exposures. So it's important that where whatever facility is getting the skeletal survey, the, the radiology techs and the radiologists understand what a skeletal survey actually encompasses. A babygram, just taking one x-ray of a baby is not acceptable, we will miss injuries. We need to make sure we're getting views of their arms, legs, hands, feet, um, and then spine individually, cervical, thoracic, lumbar separately. Um, and we want multiple views of every area. Fractures that are specifically concerning for abuse include the classic metaphyseal lesion. So that is also known as a bucket handle fracture. Um, and those occur at the end of long bones in children less than one. These are unique to these young children because their growth plates are open and they're growing very quickly. And these are really little microplanar fractures at the end of the long bones um, that we see either as a result of pulling and twisting on the extremity or if a baby's being held and moved forcefully back and forth, um, shaking and the arms and legs are flailing, we can see um, these CMLs at the end of those long bones. Posterior rib fractures make us concerned in young infants for if they're being held and there's an anterior-posterior compression or squeezing to the chest. There's a fulcrum that um, is created right along the edge of the spine that can cause these posterior rib fractures. Fractures of flat bones like the scapula and sternum require a fair amount of force. Um, so without a clear accidental history, those are concerning, similarly with spinous processes. 
multiple fractures in various stages of healing. Unlike bruising, we can date fractures um, a little bit. We can say if they're older or um, newer, less than seven to 10 days old. And so if we see multiple fractures in various stages of healing, that certainly makes us concerned for multiple episodes of trauma. And then those long bone fractures, femoral and humeral fractures in non-ambulatory infants, so young infants um, with, with fractures, of course, are concerning. Fractures that are often accidental, clavicular fractures in kids that fall, super common. So these are ambulatory children that are falling. Femoral fractures um, in ambulatory children, if they're running and they slide and they come down on their leg underneath them, we often see spiral fractures of the femur. And I think in medical school, I learned that was concerning for abuse. So I want, and I've heard other people say that. So um, I just want to make it clear that just because it's a femoral fracture, just because it's a spiral fracture, if you have a good history in an ambulatory child, it can be plausible. Supercondylar fractures are very common in our kids that uh, try and jump off the top of the bunk and land on their elbow. Um, and so we're not too worried about those being abusive. Um, and really distal extremity fractures in kids older than two are, are pretty common. So the neuroimaging that we want to do, like I said, head CT or MRI of the brain or um, uh, can be done to evaluate for intracranial injury. Ultrasound is really not um, an option here. Despite these young infants potentially having an open fontanelle um, and being able to get the probe in there, with the probe is placed, the ultrasound technician cannot get it positioned in such a way that we could see under the convexities of the skull in a way that would adequately evaluate for subdural hemorrhage, um, which is the most common um, type of injury identified in abusive head trauma. So ultrasound does not have a place in evaluation of a young infant for abusive head trauma. The other injuries we typically see are cerebral edema and hypoxic ischemic injury um, when we're looking at these studies. So with abusive head trauma, it has been called shaken baby syndrome in the past. We don't call that anymore because that implies that we know that a baby was shaken, but what we, what we, which we don't know. What we do know is that there are acceleration deceleration forces. So the head was moving forward and backward very quickly and then it stopped and there can be impact or there could not be impact. So um, we use abusive head trauma to catch all of those um, possibilities. The signs and symptoms can be incredibly vague. So lethargy, vomiting, change in neurologic status or seizures, coma or death are more, um, uh, more obvious. Um, but I think it's, again, it, this is a diagnosis. If we don't keep it on our differential, we can and we will miss it. So if a child's coming back with vomiting multiple times, true vomiting, not spit up, true vomiting multiple times, they don't have a fever and they don't have diarrhea, I think we need to think of some kind of intracranial process going on that's increasing the pressure and causing the vomiting, and it could be abusive head trauma. Um, babies that are really persistently fussy um, without other uh, signs of um, uh, etiology for that fussiness. Um, we want to make sure we're thinking about it in those kids. Other physical exam findings with abusive head trauma, retinal hemorrhages. That being said, evaluating the back of a baby's eye for retinal hemorrhages and not seeing them is not a sufficient way to exclude abusive head trauma. We need that neuroimaging. Um, and I think what's really important and sometimes hard for people to kind of grasp is that we don't have to have cutaneous injuries present. So most of the kids that I see that have abusive head trauma don't have any outward signs um, of injury. So just because there isn't bruising doesn't mean there isn't something else going on. With all of these children, we would do the bleeding evaluation like I talked about to make sure we're not missing 
a bleeding disorder, and we do recommend an MRI of the spine as well to look for uh, further CNS injury. Abdominal trauma. Um, young children are especially vulnerable to abdominal trauma because of their big bellies with uh, lax musculature. Um, and these clinical manifestations can also be really subtle and evolve slowly. The mechanism is typically blunt force trauma. Um, what we find is laceration or hematoma of solid organs, rupture of hollow organs and hematomas to the bowel wall. So that may be the symptom. I think a duodenal hematoma is one of the most common types of um, injuries we see. And so as that hematoma swells and you start to get um, a small bowel blockage, then the symptoms will kind of start to develop in terms of vomiting and discomfort. And so it can take a while, like days to weeks before this really presents. So when we're getting a history, we need to think about what has happened over the past few weeks leading up to these symptoms. Intra-abdominal bleeding. Bruising of the abdominal wall is actually unusual. So we really need to um, think about if there could be abdominal trauma and do the screening labs, um, which is AST, ALT, and lipase. We recommend getting those on all children less than five years old. And if the AST or ALT are above 80, the lipase is above 100, um, that would um, necessitate an abdominal CT. Again, this is another place where you might think, can't I use an ultrasound? And unfortunately, an ultrasound is just limited um, by many factors, including um, the user error. And if we see something on ultrasound, um, like fluid, we're gonna get the abdominal CT anyway. So we would, we would recommend getting the abdominal CT. The other important thing to note about abdominal trauma is that we, even if we're looking um, even if what we find is a grade one liver laceration and medically we don't need to do anything about that, the child will resolve without, our, without intervention, forensically that's very important for us to share with children's services and law enforcement. So it's important to look for all injuries um, to note what, what has happened to this child. The other type of sentinel injury is frenulum tear. Um, so there are three frenula, upper labial, lower labial, and under the tug, sublingual. Potential accidental etiologies are a kid falling and hitting their face on an object. It can happen iatrogenically. Um, potential abusive etiologies are a slap or punch to the mouth, forced feeding if a frustrated parent is kind of jamming a spoon, pacifier, or bottle into the child's mouth, and then forced oral sex is another um, etiology that we may see. So again, this is an injury that should raise concern in our young infants that really aren't generating the force um, to cause these injuries. Um, so differential diagnosis, trauma, uh, midline congenital anomaly or infection, um, and the workup is the same for a non-ambulatory child. So we want to get that imaging, the neuroimaging on a child less than six months old, and then screening labs for abdominal trauma. So I want to touch briefly on strategies to improve recognition of abusive injuries because I think we've talked about what they are, but how do we make sure we're not missing them? First, we have to acknowledge that we all carry bias. It, we just do, that's human. Um, and we know that that bias um, presents itself as disparities in assessing for child abuse. Abusive head trauma is more often missed in white children and children of dual parent homes. So I think we miss it in our, you know, kind of upper middle class white families because we just don't think that abuse could exist, which is why I told you at the beginning, there's a list of risk factors. Those don't exist for, for patients. Risk factors help for populations, not patients. Minority children have higher rates of um, evaluation for abuse and reports for suspected abuse. Um, and physical abuse is considered more often in children of low socioeconomic status. What we need to do, what we need to remember is to use a routine approach. 
we want to base our level of concern on the entries identified. Risk factors are helpful if they're positive. They're not helpful if they're um, not positive. And we really need to minimize our reliance on subjective impressions of caregivers. Just because a parent is frustrated or angry doesn't mean they're abusive. Just because they're not frustrated or angry doesn't mean they're not abusive. Um, I think it doesn't matter how a family presents. What matters is does the injury that you see in this child match the history that you're given? Use the same approach. If a baby comes in, they're 22 days old and they have a fever, we do a list of things to look for sepsis. It's not really something we talk about. It's not something we negotiate. This is what we do. When a child, a young child comes in with a sentinel injury, we want to do the list of things. We want to do a full physical exam with them undressed. We want to take pictures of any cutaneous findings, get that neuroimaging, either head CT um, or MRI, do the skeletal survey, screening labs for abdominal trauma, psychosocial assessment. And then when there are concerns for one child in the home being abused, we want to make sure we're seeing the siblings or other contact children um, that could be in the same care environment because we know they're also at risk for injury. And again, mandated reporting laws, just like we talked about from the beginning, we're all mandated reporters. And in Ohio, the law is that we are mandated to report to children's services and or law enforcement if we have reasonable suspicion of abuse. You don't have to know a child was abused. You don't have to possess proof. And as long as you're making the report in good faith, you're not liable for making the report. We want to communicate with partner injuries or partner agencies. We want to document the injuries that we see. Talk about the history and why it doesn't make sense. Talk about why you're concerned. Talk about the risk um, associated. Yes, it's a bruise and bruises are gonna heal, but it's a two month old. Something happened. Um, and we want to make sure that children's services know that we would want to see the siblings and evaluate them as well. So in conclusion, cutaneous injuries are the single most common presentation of physical child abuse. In non-ambulatory infants, the presence of an intraoral injury or bruise should really prompt concern for additional injury. Many children are raised in environments where they're repeatedly exposed to potential harm, and we can save lives by intervening with these minor injuries. Recurrent abuse is associated with increased morbidity and mortality. Please don't miss that sentinel event as an opportunity to protect the child. We can and should maintain objectivity and respect for the caregivers during our evaluation for physical abuse. Remember the presence of a medical condition doesn't negate the possibility that the patient could also be abused. And we're all mandated reporters and we need to report when we have concerns of maltreatment. Thank you so much, Kristen. That was super helpful with you know very clear guidelines. No matter what kind of patient you're seeing, if you see these suspicions, you should um, do the workup and report. So that was extremely helpful. Now I do have a question about the timing of all this. So let's say you're, I'm seeing a patient in my outpatient clinic and I see a suspicious bruise and I want to do some additional testing. Do I order that outpatient or should I be sending them to the emergency room? Yeah, so it's such a good question. I think with the younger children, kids less than two, because they're really going to need that imaging, that skeletal survey. And if they're the little babies, um, six months and under, we would recommend that neuroimaging. They need to go to the emergency department. That's where that workup can happen as quickly as possible. We're very fortunate here in Central Ohio to have Nationwide Children's Hospital, um, where we also have um, social workers that can help with um, reporting with uh, to children's services, with talking to the families about what this looks like, um, and help coordinate a safe disposition for the child. Mm -hmm. With older children, as long as 
you feel like you can send them home with a caregiver who is protective and is not the offending caregiver, um, then you can um, get that lab work in your office and, and send them home. Um, but we wanna make sure that if there's any concern for safety, that that's communicated to Children's Services before they would leave. Okay, now what about an older child and concern for sexual abuse? Should those go to the emergency room for a SANE exam? Yeah, so a SANE exam is an exam done by a sexual assault nurse examiner. Um, and we have PSANE, so the pediatric mm -hmm. version. Um, and we would want to do an acute exam, either a PSANE exam through the ED that happens at nights and weekends, or we can actually see the acute sexual assault in our office at the um, Child Advocacy Center um, during the day. Uh, within 96 hours of the, the last contact um, with the perpetrator. So within 96 hours of sexual assault for children who are 12 and over um, to get that evidence collection kit, what TV calls a rape kit, uh, we would get that done. Um, for children under 12, so up to 11, that time frame is a little bit different. It's We want to see them within 72 hours um, to get that evidence collection kit. Once they're out of that time frame, um, if you're you're seeing them in the office, you can report to Children's Services and or law enforcement, um, and then we would see them in our Child Advocacy Center for a forensic interview, um, which is an age-appropriate, uh, legally defensible interview to um, understand the child's disclosures, what's happened to them, um, and we would do the medical exam at that time be because they're out of the window for that rape kit being collected. Okay, and at what point should I be making uh, a call to child services. So um, let's say, for example, um, you know, I heard that the, the parents are telling me that the school has already made a report. Do I, as the physician examining the child, also need to make a report? So if you have concerns for abuse that you're seeing, then you are mandated to make the report. If something has been evaluated, if the school has made a report and the family is coming and saying, the school reported this, an investigation has been done, it's been closed. That mm -hmm. does not need to be re-reported. If you're seeing a, an injury, um, documenting an injury, I would encourage that to be reported mm -hmm. um, by your office. You don't want to fail to make the report. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In cases where, so we um, take call for mm -hmm. um, our, our group and for any physicians in kind of Southeastern Ohio in our catchment area for Nationwide Children's. And if a, someone from an outside hospital um, calls me and says, I have concern for physical abuse, I'm sending the child to, to Nationwide Children's ED for workup. Um, if that person that calls me has concern for abuse, even if they know that they're sending the child here and we're most likely going to make a report, the law still states that that individual also needs to make a report. Mm -hmm. So knowing someone else is going to doesn't mean you don't have to. Mm -hmm. um, but if, if it's been evaluated and the case is closed, you do not need to re-report. Okay, that is extremely helpful. Now, um, I'm sure you're aware, but child abuse is such a stigmatizing topic and it can be pretty difficult to approach it with caregivers. And especially as a primary care doctor, I'm always concerned I'm going to irreparably damage my relationship with the um, family and they're, they're never going to come back to a medical setting again. What is um, your approach to kind of approach these topics? And then also, um, how would you approach, you know, a family who is denying the possibility of abuse, doesn't want to go to the ER or get that additional testing? Because, I mean, it is, it, like you said, it's like 24 different x-rays. It's pretty invasive. It is a lot. 
Um, and so you have several questions there, and I want to make sure I touch on each of them. First, there's actually a study that looked at uh, when a primary care provider reports how likely a family is to return, and it's actually about 85% of that study. So Good study, to know. <laughs> evidence shows that it does not irreparably harm relationships. Of course, it can. And these discussions are so hard, and I do not want to underestimate um, or minimize how hard they are. However, what we're talking about is a child's safety. And what I tell my trainees is we got to get over it a little bit. So mm -hmm. we, we went into medicine to keep, to help people and children are our most vulnerable patients. We have to keep them safe and healthy. And if having a difficult conversation is part of it, we kind of got to suck it up and do it. So, um, I tell our trainees and I approach it with honesty, tell a family, I, I am seeing this injury. It's more than I would expect from what you're, the history you've provided, or we have no history, or developmentally, this doesn't make sense to see this kind of injury. Um, so because of that, I'm concerned that something else is happening. I don't tell, say, I'm concerned you're hurting your child. Mm -hmm. I say, I'm concerned someone has hurt your child on purpose. And I say it very clearly because if we mince words, families know when we're acting covertly and that just leads to them acting covertly. We want to try and partner with families to keep kids safe and healthy. And I tell them that I want what you want. I want your child to be safe and healthy at home with you. Mm -hmm. To do that, we need to make sure we understand all of the child's underlying medical problems, if there are any other injuries, and if there's additional support that you need um, that Children's Services can provide to help mm -hmm. make sure that this child's in a safe environment. If mm -hmm. a family declines to go, um, then I expand that conversation by saying, this is my recommendation medically. Your 16-month-old needs to go have a skeletal survey. This can be done in the ED if they decline, which I will say is rare as long as we're, mm -hmm. we're open with families. Um, then I will say, that's my medical recommendation. I'm going to report the injury to Children's Services, and I will also share that at this point you are declining to um, progress with the recommended medical assessment. And this isn't a threat. It's just a statement of truth. Mm -hmm. If if a family is not doing what we recommend with their family, we need or with our child, we need to report that to Children's Services as well. Okay, thank you. And I just have one final question because I know we're running short on time. But if you have an older child who is verbal, how should me as a clinician help interview that child to try to avoid you know leading them on and um, planting any ideas in their head? So just ask really open-ended questions how did this injury happen? And if a child kind of says vaguely, I fell, one of the best questions we use is tell me more about that mm -hmm. and try and prompt them to tell you a story. Kids love to tell stories. So <laughs> use that episodic memory. Tell me what happened to what, what happened before, what happened after and help kids kind of walk through it. Mm -hmm. um, and then we can also see children for forensic uh, interviews like we do for sexual abuse, um, for physical abuse at our child advocacy center at the hospital. Well, thank you so much, Kristen. That is all extremely helpful information and I feel much more comfortable with the process now. We're gonna finish up today's program with a final key point. Kristen. Thank you so much. So my final key point is to believe what children tell us. So if older children report that someone is hurting them, it is important that we believe them and we act on that. And for younger children, if we see an injury, even if it's something minor like a, a bruise or an injury in their mouth, if they are under four months old and they cannot cause that injury themselves, we need to do something to intervene to keep that child safe. 
Thanks for joining us today. For our audience, you can receive CME credit for watching by logging onto our website at ccme.osu.edu. Join us again next week to learn about common office procedures. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.